If you do not know, this is my three-year-old son, Freddie. uh, Just before he is about to ride his bike for the first time. We bought him a bike last summer, a year ago, but we didn't buy him a helmet. So he had to wait a whole year until he could ride the bike. We're trying to teach him patience at a young age. And I actually said, Freddie, can you give me your best smile? And so this, if you ask him, or you can ask him after church, smile for me. If he's feeling brave, he'll give you that smile. That is what he thinks is smiling. And you get told before you're having kids, there's a different kind of love when you have a child. And you, 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 I, I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I love my wife. I, I, I kind of know what love is. I don't know if I'm going to experience a different kind of love. When Freddie came into the world, suddenly I had experienced a different kind of love. There was something that changed, a different kind of love. And I love Freddie and I love our now eight-month-old Oscar as well with all of my heart. I'm massively, massively passionate about my two boys and I love them. And because I love them, I tell them that there's some things that they can do and there's some things that they can't do. And so I tell Freddie, you are not allowed to eat sand. I tell him you are not allowed to run into roads. I tell him you are not allowed to have chocolate for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and just before bed. I tell him that as daddy's beer, you are not allowed to drink from daddy's beer. I give him rules because I'm a bad guy? No, because I love him. Because I am passionate about him. Because I know that if you run into a road it could end badly. I know that if you eat chocolate for breakfast, lunch and dinner, it probably will end badly. I know that if you drink beer as a three-year-old, well, I expect if you drink beer as a three-year-old, it will end badly. I give him these rules because I love him. Thousands of years before this guy was born, before I was born, before my great-great-great-great-grandparents were born, lived couple called Adam and Eve and they had a similar relationship to what I have with my son to God and they lived in this perfect relationship with him. God loved them. God said you can do this, this is yours, rule, enjoy it but don't do that because that's bad for you because he loved them, because he knew and then this enemy came into the picture and said, did God really say, don't do that? That's not because he loves you. That's because he thinks you might be like him. And Adam and Eve decided, instead of listening to their loving father, to God, they decided to listen to this enemy. And they went away from the rule of God. They decided to become their own gods. And in so doing, they broke the relationship between God and man, between God and woman. Broken. But on that day, in that moment, God said one thing. He said to the enemy this, I will send someone. I will send someone who will crush your head, who will defeat you, who will be utterly, completely victorious. He will be victorious over you. I will send someone. 
And the whole of Scripture, that's right at the beginning, that's a story right at the beginning of the Bible, all the way through Scripture, we hear, someone's coming, someone's coming, boom, 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 someone's coming, someone's coming. And as I said just a minute ago, we're looking at the book of John, a book in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. And in that book, one theme, one thing that is spoken about a lot is the hour. Ba-boom, ba-boom. The hour, the hour, the hour. And we find out that this is the hour. That is the hour that Jesus will become victorious. It is the hour that God promised all those years ago when man went away from God and God said, I will send someone. This is the hour, the death, resurrection of Jesus. And as we look at the last few chapters of John, we have reached this hour. We have reached this moment of victory, this moment of success, this moment of head-crushing And Jesus is bursting onto the scene with this statement. The kingdom of God is near. The hour is coming. Mark 1.15, we read that. The whole way through, there's victory, there's victory, there's success about to come. And Jews hearing this of the day, they would have been expecting Victory. They would have been expecting a successful one to come. But to not just come and be a good teacher, but to come and defeat all other enemies. Defeat Rome. The, 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 the kingdom coming. When they hear Jesus say, the kingdom is near, they would expect this military leader to come and destroy everyone and establish the kingdom of God. The king. The king successful one, victorious one. They would have been expecting someone a little bit like this. life or the next. 
Fantastic film. This is the sort of king that the Jews were expecting. The, the film is all about, not this guy, <laughs> the one before. The film is all about this, this general who becomes a slave but then rises and takes down Rome, the, the emperor. And that is what the Jews were expecting, this mighty, powerful, this promised one that God promised all those years before the victorious one. And so it's with that background, here Oscar, it's with that background in our head that we read the story today. And I'm going to be reading from John chapter 18, around about verse 12. As I said, I'm actually going to be reading the message version, so it'll be a little bit difficult to follow along, um, so you don't need to try that. It's not on the screen. You can listen um, and just enjoy the story. Then the Roman soldiers, under their commander, joined by the Jewish police, seized Jesus and tied him up. They took him first to Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the chief priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was to their advantage that one man die for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. That other disciple was known to the chief priest. And so he went in with Jesus to the chief priest's courtyard. Peter had to stay outside. Then the other disciple went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and got Peter in. The young woman who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples? He said, No, I'm not. The servants and police had made a fire because of the cold and were huddled there, warming themselves. Peter stood with them, trying to get warm. Anas interrogated Jesus regarding his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly in public. I've taught regularly in meeting places and the temple where the Jews all come together. Everything has been out in the open. I've said nothing in secret. So why are you treating me like a conspirator? Question those who have been listening to me. They know well what I have said. My teachings have all been above board. When he said this, one of the policemen standing there slapped Jesus across the face, saying, how dare you speak to the chief priest like that? Jesus replies, if I've said something wrong, prove it. But if I've spoken the plain truth, why this slapping around? Then Anna sent him, still tied up to the chief priest Caiaphas. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was back at the fire, still trying to get warm. 
The others there said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? He denied it. No, 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 not me. One of the chief priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, said, but, but didn't I see you in, in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it. Just then, a rooster crowed. They led Jesus then from Caiaphas to the Roman governor's palace. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the palace because they didn't want to be disqualified from eating the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and spoke, what charge do you bring against him? They said, if he hadn't been doing something evil, do you think we'd be here bothering you? Pilate said, you take him, judge him by your law. The Jew said, but we're not allowed to kill anyone. This would confirm Jesus' word indicating the way he would die. Pilate went back into the palace and called for Jesus. He said, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own? Or did others tell you this about me? Pilate said, do I look like a Jew? Your people, your high priests, turned you over to me. What did you do? My kingdom, said Jesus, doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But I'm not that kind of king. Not the world's kind of king. Then Pilate said, so are you a king or not? Jesus answered, you tell me, because I am king. I was born, entered into the world so that I could witness to the truth. Everyone who cares for truth, who has any feeling for the truth, recognises my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? Then he went back out to the Jews and told them, I find nothing wrong in this man. It's your custom that I pardon one prisoner at Passover. Do you want me to pardon the king of Jews? They shouted back, not this one, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a Jewish freedom fighter. So Pilate took Jesus and had him whipped. The soldiers, having braided a crown from thorns, set it on his head, threw a purple robe over him and approached with him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they greeted him with slaps in the face. Pilate went back out again and said to them, I present him to you, but I want you to know that I do not find him guilty. Just then Jesus came out wearing the thorn crown and purple robe. Pilate announced, here he is, the man. When the high priests and police saw him, they shouted in a frenzy, crucify, crucify. Pilate told them, you take him, you crucify him. I find nothing wrong with him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he became even more scared. He went back into the palace and said to Jesus, where where did you come from? Jesus gave no answer. Pilate said again, you won't talk. Don't you know that I have the authority to pardon you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you haven't a shred of authority over me except what has been given you from heaven. That's why the one who betrayed me to you has committed a far greater fault. At this, Pilate tried his best to pardon him. But the Jews shouted him down. If you pardon this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone setting himself up as king defies Caesar. 
When Pilate heard these words, he led Jesus outside. He sat down at the judgment seat in the area designated Stone Court. It was the preparation day for Passover. The hour was noon. Pilate said to the Jews, here is your king. They shouted back, kill him, kill him, crucify him. Pilate said, am I to crucify your king? The high priest answered, we have no king except Caesar. Pilate caved into their, de- their demand. He turned him over. They, he turned him over to be crucified. What a story. What a mess. Where's this victory that was promised? Ba boom, ba boom. The hour is coming, the hour is coming. When I read that story, all I see is a mess. All I see is a mess. I see the promised one, the king, bound up in a rope, dragged by soldiers in front of the high priest for questioning. That doesn't look like a king. I see Jesus's, one of his closest friends, Simon Peter, deny him. The man who said, I would die for you. Deny him to a servant girl. Do you know this man? No, no, I don't know this man. Three times. Do you know this man? I'm pretty sure I saw you in the garden. Wasn't me. I don't know this man. Three times. As Jesus is going through the most difficult moment in his life, one of his best friends, I don't know him. This doesn't look like victory. This doesn't look like success. And then he's questioned in front of the high priests. Questioned? They don't want his answers. This is no questioning. This is a scam. This is high priests trying to trip him up. They don't care about his answers. This isn't questioning. Dragged, bound. And then we see him in front of Pilate the Roman governor, the one guy. Is this the moment that Jesus' victory starts? Is this the moment that everything turns around and this mess, this bad situation starts to look good? Is this the moment? Because Pilate is not finding anything wrong with him. And it seems that Pilate wants to know truth. We see that in chapter 18. What is truth? He wants to know truth. I find no wrong in him, he says. I find no wrong in him. Three times he says, I find no wrong in him. Yet what does he do? He says, Barabbas or Jesus. Even though he finds no wrong in him, he says, okay, I will release one prisoner. Jesus isn't a prisoner. There's nothing wrong with him. He's innocent. But he still says, I will release one prisoner. Barabbas, who here we hit... Here is a freedom fighter. He's a rebel against basically all authorities. We are also reading other gospels that he's a murderer. This is a bad guy. And Jesus, the healer, the lover, the one that has only ever done good. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. As the crowd are given the decision, given the choice. That one opportunity, that one moment we think, this is, could be it, Jesus and Pilate get together and the victory starts to happen. 
Pilate caves in to the will of the people. And finally, we read those horrific words at the end. Crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him. This is coming from the Jews. This is coming from the people who Jesus came for. His own people. Crucify him. Crucify him. Kill him. This doesn't seem like a victory scene. This doesn't seem like the, the promised one that God said all those years ago in the garden is going to come and defeat the enemy, going to defeat sin, going to defeat death. This just seems like a mess, a real mess. High priests deny, um, scheming, friends denying, pilot authorities buckling into the pressure of the people. It's just a mess. This is unlike any film that I've ever seen. When I watch films like Gladiator, for example, or Braveheart is another one, you see the victorious side absolutely demolish the the enemy. You see them walk over their bodies in the fields. You see them like taking things from, you know, like stealing things from the dead. You see them capturing the king, torturing the king. That's victory. That's success. That's when I know they've won. When everyone else is dead. When the... This is not that. It just, it just seemed confusing. And to understand the whole story, we need to understand the conversation that Pilate has with Jesus. And you can find that in 18, verse 38. Verse 36, actually. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. This is the key to understanding what's going on. And it's this. Jesus is not of this world. There's a new kingdom. Things are going to look different. And so when we look at it through our eyes, through the eyes that Gladiator have taught us, through the eyes that Braveheart or history of great conquests have taught us, all we see is defeat. Actually, There's a new kingdom, and there's a new king in town. And he looks different. And there's two things I want us to see from this passage. And the first thing is this. Jesus is king. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is king. It may look to us that he is being defeated... It may look to us like the high priests are the one in authority over him. Or, as Pilate says himself, I have authority over your life, over your death. It may look to us like those are the guys in authority. Actually, Jesus is king. 
He's just a different kind. He's a different king. And in fact, this is the only time in the book of John that we hear about Jesus' birth. Other gospels you hear about at the beginning, the nativity, that Mary and Joseph, and they go off and they have a baby in the stable, the animals. Here is when we hear about Jesus' birth. And Jesus says, I was born. Why? To be king. I was born to be king. He's just a different kind. Next slide, please. See, when we think about kings, these are the sorts of kings that we think about. Lions, strong, powerful, fast. These are the kings that we think about when we think about kings. Not lambs. We don't think about kings when we look at lambs. We think, oh, that's sweet. I mean, everyone just did it. Oh, that's lovely, isn't it? Lovely little smiley little guy, that one, isn't it? We don't look at that and say, wow, king. What a king he would be. Do we? The Jews were expecting a lion king. We have been taught to expect a lion king. This is what God shows Isaiah um, in Isaiah 53. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read a little bit. This is um, God speaking to Isaiah and giving him a view of the king that he would be sending. Isaiah 53. I probably should have got someone else to read this because this is going to get me, I think. This is what God says to Isaiah about the king that will come. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is our king. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's our king. That's our king. And so as we look at this story, we, we seem to think, oh, it's the priests that have won. Wrong. Jesus is king. He's just different. And it's important that we see that. He's not the king that we'd expect. He's the lamb that was slain. That is Jesus. That is our king, the lamb that was slain willing to give himself up, willing to be tied up 
willing to be carried to the priests, willing to be questioned by someone who was well below his authority. He says, I'm above your authority. No, you're not. All of that, that's our king. That is our king. He's just a different type. It's grace. It's the message of grace. Not only do we have a different king, we also have a different kingdom. Jesus regularly talks in all of the four Gospels, all the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four stories about his life. He regularly talks about the kingdom. Regularly. It's one of his biggest teaching points, if not his biggest. And here we see a a glimpse of the kingdom. And what's the glimpse? The kingdom is different. Because we have a king who is different. Here we see in this story that apparent defeat is actually victory. That apparent weakness is actually strength. That, that, that mess and confusion is actually perfectly planned by God. In this kingdom we see criminals worthy of death swapped for kings worthy of all honour all praise, all glory, life, swapped. That's the kingdom. It's a different kingdom. And we need to see that. It's really, really important that we see that. Because we live in a culture, in a time, that would say the right things, the things that show that you're winning, the things that show that you will be victorious, that you are successful, or how much money you have, what your health is like, the friends that you have, how many likes you get on a Facebook status, your looks. That's what the culture says. You're winning, you're successful, you're victorious if you get 100 likes on a Facebook post. The kingdom says what is right may actually look wrong. It's not about how many friends you've got. It's not about how many likes you have on Facebook, how much money you have, how much health. Because we're part of a different kingdom. So, so important that we understand this. I believe understanding this will change our life. It will change how we handle disappointment. It will change how we handle our purpose, how we handle our destiny. Because we won't see these things as failures. If something bad happens, if something good happens, we won't see it as good and bad and failures. We'll see it as, no, everything, God works for the good. Everything. God has planned it all. We've been caught up in this picture, this story. God has planned it all. It may look like a mess where you are right now. It may look confusing. It may look like you're being questioned and no one really wants to know the answers. Or your friends are denying you. It may look like the story that we're reading. It may look like a mess. But in Jesus' kingdom, in the kingdom that we have been brought into, it's all perfectly planned. We're all part of God's big picture, part of God's big story. And it's absolutely amazing. It can change our life. Because disappointment and anger at God, why did you not heal this person who I prayed for? It's all part of the story. You just need to see it through the kingdom perspective. You need to see it through the kingdom perspective because it's a different kingdom. It's not like the culture that we're taught. 
This is what Romans 8 says. 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Hear that, it's God who justifies, who is to condemn? You feel condemned? Only God justifies. Hear that. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, as we're going to get onto in the next weeks. He was raised, he is at the right hand of God, he is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the kingdom. In everything, everything, Christ is Lord and is working out his will through us. So Jesus calls us, he calls the unwise, the uninfluential. We've not got time to read it, but 1 Corinthians is... Brilliant, talking about he calls the the fools, the weak, the lowly, the despised. He calls us to shame the strong. Because that's the way of the kingdom. As we look at this story of Jesus, we think, wow, what a weak king. He's winning the victory that was promised all those years ago. It's just not how we expect. It's not how the Jews would expect. Because he's a different kind of king. He's the lamb who was slain for us. Everything is under God's control. Hear that. Governments, scary governments, leaders, finances. God is in control of absolutely everything. (laughs) He's working everything for the good. When we may look and think, it's starting to get bad, he's sitting there thinking, oh, I'm working everything for the good. I'm working everything for the good because that is the kingdom of God. Jesus went through this moment it doesn't really seem to make sense. It's confusing. It's messy. But when you take a step out, when you see the bigger picture, you see it all making perfect sense. Because he is the king. He is the one that God promised would come, would crush the head of the enemy, would welcome us in through his death, through exactly this happening. And if your life feels messy, if your life is messy, hold on. (laughs) That's all I can encourage you to do. Hold on. Because we don't 
judge our life by cultural successes. We judge our life by the kingdom. And in the kingdom, God makes mess into victory. He's working out his good. He is working out his good. So I want to encourage you, hold on. Understand that God is working out his good in your life, even if it looks confusing and messy. God is at work. It may look different because he is different. He's a different king and we're part of a different kingdom. We're going to finish with communion. So if I can invite the band up, please. Jesus, just before this story, in fact, said to his closest friends, knowing that he was going to the cross, take it, sorry. knowing that he was going to the cross, he said to his closest friends this, take this bread, this is my body, broken for you. Remember me. He then said, take this wine. This is my blood shed for you. Remember me. And so we're going to take an opportunity now to sing a song and to remember Jesus. Because without Jesus is death. Without his body broken, without his blood shed, this kingdom where confusing things are made right would not be accessible. We would be enemies. We would be broken. We would be without God, without hope. But because of Jesus, because of his death, because of his body broken, his blood shed, we've been welcomed in. If you're new to church, if this is the first time you've heard this message, this is for you too. It's not just uh, for those that have been part of church for longer. This message of Jesus, the message of his death and his resurrection, his body broken, his blood shed, this message of bringing you right, bringing you hope in a messy situation, is for you.